Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. In the studio, we have the lovely Zoya. Hello. We've got the lovely Chris. Hello. And we've got Ayan. Hey! Welcome back. A poor sound effect. I don't know if it's going to I I got rid of it because the radiothon's over. (laughs) Well, it's bad. (laughs) Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back and new faces. Well, new to me, but not new to our listeners. It's great to yeah. meet you. Not yeah. only are we having Ion back, she is in charge of the panel as well. She's come in, I arrived, she's behind, she's set <laughs> up. It's just like, I'm in charge now, it's my show, I'm back. Jumping like you straight never into left. It. I yeah. love, yeah, no, I actually enjoy paneling, it's so much fun. She um she threatened that if we made a bad joke, she'd like hovered her finger over the mute button for our uh, microphone. Mm-hmm. I think it was just, just you though, Chris. Chris? Well, I mean, I was trying I mean. to be generous there, but yeah, no, it was just me. <laughs> So what's the date today? It is the 25th of June. How is it the end of June? I, I feel like everyone's, we just keep saying this. How is it the end of March? How is it the end of April? It's How is time progressing, Zara? Oh. What is time? What is, what time? is time? Answer me. I don't know. It's four degrees outside. Oh God. I had actual ice on my windscreen this morning. Oh, my God. It was like I was living back in the UK. I was, I was, I left the UK for a reason, and mm. it was ice on the windscreen in the morning. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was in Rutherglen over the weekend, and there was frost on the grass, which, like, sounds nice and fun, but it mm. wasn't. No. Mm. No, it's that cold. It was negative four. Negative <laughs> <laughs> four. Mm. Awful. Not fun. And you went all the way there for wine. I mean, y- yes. Mm. Yeah. I would travel anywhere for wine. <laughs> well, I mean, you did drive to South Australia and back over 2,000 kilometres round trip driving purely just for wine. So. You drove to South Australia, I said in the back seat. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a very heavy packed show today. Um, so we've got Chris, firstly, with the news and headlines, which we will jump to in a sec. At 7.30, we've got Hayley Cull, who's the Advocacy Director of Plan International, Inc., um, and she's coming on to talk about this really important report that they've recently released in conjunction with the Monash Centre for Gender, I'm pretty sure. Um, so we'll be talking about that at 7.30. And then at 7.45? Mm, at 7.45, we have Jessica Morrison, who is from the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and she will be talking about the Trump administration's economic plan and why that plan is, why we should, like, have a raised eyebrow, basically. Mm. Yeah. And at 8, we've got Emily Sexton, who's coming on to talk about Future Assembly, which is a really exciting show. I think it's happening mid-July. 
um, uh, over five or six shows. So we'll be doing individual interviews with each artist in the next two weeks. But Emily's coming on today to talk about what the show is about and how to imagine a future with a decolonized um, sort of arts. And yeah, it'll be interesting. And then at 8.15, we have Asha Wolf, who's a freelance journalist, who attended the Progress 19 conference here in Melbourne um, last week. That There was a somewhat of a debacle in their approach to um, accessibility, um, and she's in to talk about that and broader issues in social justice organisations. Mm. So firstly... Chris? Yes, news. Um, all terrible again. So <laughs> fair warning. Uh, Chris, you need to end with a. You need to pretend that you're doing some kind of American cable network news mm. and end with a happy note. Like here's a squirrel on a, here's on, a, nice a on a water ski. Or yeah. Something, you know. Okay, I'll think of that. I'll think <laughs> of something. You know, something fun. Well, we actually were talking earlier. We've kind of got something that might be a little, you know. Maybe not fun, but fun to talk about. Mm, mm. I don't remember that conversation, but I'm excited. <laughs> but yeah. Um, oh, okay. So first up, and it, this is something that is going to be ongoing, sadly. But uh, Peter Dutton has just made up a bunch of a bunch of numbers and figures and incidences off the top of his head in regards to Medivac legislation, which uh, speeds up the process of getting sick people off Manus and theoretically Nauru, but Nauru has kind of found its way to block. The, um, uh, the the mechanism, the electronic medical kind of assessments. Mm. It's um, that's a whole other really depressing scenario. They kind of rely on these torture centres for a lot of their money, so it's not in their interest to let people go. But on Manus, there have been a um, okay. So there's a there's been a few lies from Peter Dutton. He is he has said that there are 250 people on a wait list. There are not. There are 50 people. Uh, he's he's brought that up as a figure to say, hey, this is to have, this is a flood, you know, we're open the floodgates, blah blah blah. It's not he's gotten the number wrong there, but more importantly, he's uh, also said that there's that this letting people come off of Manus and you know be treated in Australia for mental and physical health health issues um, stops a resettlement plan in America, which. Uh, there's no reason that that's the case. He's saying, like, he has no proof. He's brought up no people. He's saying, oh, if people come here when they're suicidal, um, they don't, you know, they won't take America. And I'm pretty sure everyone who's been on Manus for six years in scenarios that the UN calls torture uh, aren't, you know, they're not, um, they're probably not going to say no to America if they get the chance. And isn't the bill structured in a way that once you're done with the medical treatment, you have to go back? It? it is te- theoretically yes. It is like there's kind of a question there that's like if you're, I'm not sure what kind of doctor would let someone go back to the conditions mm. that gave them okay. severe, you know, sickness. But that that is that is the scenario. But it also the other thing is that under the last couple of months that the bill has been uh, enforced, it um it's only the kind of mechanism that allows doctors to override, you know, theoretically Peter Dutton has only been used twice. He talks about it as like. It's opening of Russia people, and mm. it's like it's they've only had to use this like panel twice because so it's still the minister's discretion. Yes, unless I mean it, it is initially, but then if if he says no enough times, um, they can refer it uh-huh. to like another panel that has yeah. power. Like yeah, the panel can kind of override him unless it's on like mm-hmm. criminal grounds or something. Uh, also, he very horrifically accused. Um, a woman who was raped on Nauru and needed an abortion um, of just, like, making it up, because mm. that's mm. kind of his MO when 
these things come to the news. So there is a lot of awful scare tactics there. He's worried. I clearly he's like he's trying to repeal this the next couple of weeks, and, and Parliament resumes in July. Uh, I think, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, it all comes down to Jackie Lambie, whether they can uh, get rid of this Medivac legislation. Why does it always seem to come down to Jackie Lambie? Yeah. I, I genuinely feel like the whole of Australian democracy hangs on Jackie Lambie. She's pretty much going to have a lot of power over the next six years. She's, <laughs> yeah, the, she's the the vote, the crossbench vote, she and mm. some centre alliance people. I mean, to be honest, comparing her with, you know, say we had Bob Catter as, our, as, the, mm. as the person in... in in the position of making a decision, it's it's a slightly better situation. Mm. Some of her some of her views are, you know, yeah. she's got a lot of problematic <laughs> views. Old racist. But yeah. but the, you know, she's she's definitely got some some of the, her, her views around some things are mm-hmm. yeah okay. So but again, it's just so in, I I just. I'm sorry. Whole, yeah. I'm just fascinated by mm. just the fact that you can have a single person, and it's always Jackie Lambie. I just, yeah. anyway, sorry, that was my interjection. No, it's very strange. It's uh, she does. She's kind of found herself in that weird little sweet spot where she's mm. right in the, between the kind of really awful people and the just kind of generally awful people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a question though. Um, Peter Dutton saying 250 versus 50 people. In what? Um, Arena is he saying this, and what is he using as a source? How is he able to get away with flat out saying 250 when we know it's 50 people? He just—it's I've that's a very good question, and I have no idea why he like he just this is like all within the space of like five days that he's just made stuff up. Is he saying like, this in Parliament? No, he's just saying this like par- Parliament doesn't resume till next month, I don't believe. Um, but it's yeah, no, he just says this in like interviews and stuff, and nobody. Uh, it kind of falls to activists to say, like, there's a lot of journalists, mm-hmm. just you tend to take people at your word, and you people forget that he's, he does, he's been doing this for years. He's, mm. you know, he's accused... Um, he, there was a moment when an Australian company was spying on Sarah Hansen Young when she went to Manus, and I think when she complained about that, he accused her of being, like, hysterical or something like that, and, like, you know, making stuff up. And she went... He was going on the radio making up all this, like... It turned out she was saying the truth, and she, she was just like, no, that's... On to the next thing that we can, like, you know, mm. just make these figures up. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible. Politi- yeah. It, it's never more blatant than Peter Dutton, but, mm. you know, it's, it's clearly... Yes, that's why it's really important now more than ever that media is independent and... Mm. Yeah, independent mm. and fearless. Like, you've got to... Mm. And I, I, I'll, yeah. yeah, I'll say it. Like, I don't know what I'd say if I ever got to interview him, but there's, there's no one in Australia, I think, that disgusts me more. Or that lies as consistently and like clearly he gets away with it, you know. Mm. So he mm. you know, just keeps doing it. And I guess what you have to do is lie and then apologise for the lie after the lies had mm. the impact. Exactly. Yeah. That, that happened in Brexit yeah, when exactly. they said that, you know, X hundreds of millions or billions of pounds would drain from the NHS if we remained. And it was a flat out lie and afterwards they apologised for the lie. But right. it had its impact, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. after you win, you mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, and I don't think Tutton even does that. I don't think he even does the apology. Literally, it's very funny. If you ever get to read the article, whenever people have to, like, check in on the why did you get this figure wrong when it's this figure, the, the line is, a spokesperson for Mr. Tutton said that he had nothing further to add. Wow. It's always that. Mm-hmm. It's always very funny, but it's like, I have nothing further to add because I was wrong and mm-hmm. I lied um, for just fear-mongering, really. Um... <laughs> The next major topic, and it's a little bit more dry. I mean, it's very dry. But it's uh, the the current thing in politics at the moment is this big tax package that 
the coalition really wants to ram home. It's $158 billion, and it overwhelmingly, it's the start of, like, all these reports. And people have known for years, but it's overwhelmingly going to help the rich people who don't need the stuff. It, it's, like, there are three stages. Um, some of it doesn't come into effect until, like, 2024. It's locking. It's very weird to lock future governments into very... Uh, unstable, like taking a lot of money out of, you know, public services and stuff like that. Um, mm. uh, it's going to be very interesting to see. Like, I, I think at the moment Labor's kind of saying we'll support the first two, but not the third, which uh, kind of flattens the tax rate from people earning 40000 a year to 200000 They all They bring it all down to 30%. So, like, it kind of... Um, 40 to 200,000. 40, yeah. 40,000 to 200,000. It's um, It'll bring it all down to 30. And it's, like, it's the things like that. It's getting rid of the... It's incrementally getting rid of the progressive nature of the taxation mm. system. Um, and the Labor's kind of toying at the moment. They're like, we'll, we'll do the first what, couple that kind of... I think the first stage is affects people on lower incomes. Um, mm. But the coalition doesn't really need them either. They can probably get it with Jackie Lamb being the Centre Alliance and whoever, so... It'll um it's it's all kind of up in the air at the moment and it's it's um Labor's just increasingly giving in and it's by all accounts you know, my money is them passing it anyway but mm. um yeah Labor it, giving in is really becoming a bit a of a theme, theme isn't yeah. it even that series of tweets from what's her name Christina oh Keneally Keneally yeah, about boat turn back yeah airplane people she's yeah. really tried to out racist Peter Dutton yeah um, and just pretty much being like yeah we don't we are also of the view that immigration cannot be out of control. Yeah. But then couching it in a term that's like, oh, we're more progressive, but actually the bottom line is you're the same. Yeah, you're something to be feared and controlled and, you know, Mm. it's... um, And it almost seems like a reaction to the election results where they try to be a little bit more progressive and it sort of fell on their face. And, I mean, they weren't, but, you know. No, relatively, they Mm. were. And now they're like, what if we try and be worse than the coalition? Yeah, now they're backing away, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Christina Kennelly's going to be very, like, she came right out of the gates as a very, like, we're going to find something to criticise Peter Dutton for, and it won't be the human rights atrocities happening under our name in little offshore fucking prisons. It'll be um, an increase in people coming by plane. (laughs) You know, a perfectly safe form of arrival, you know, that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's abysmal. Uh, did we want to end on, yeah, the, um, we had a thing to talk about Taylor Swift. Did we want to get on to Taylor Swift? <laughs> In <laughs> the music, that that's, is. I was thinking something fun. We, yeah, that was fun. That's, we that's what I'm, this, this, yeah. is, this is its own segment, Chris. We, oh. have, we, have, yeah. we have a little ranty segment, I think. <laughs> you have a ranty segment. <laughs> Someone. <laughs> I like enjoying a rant. Um, well, I don't know. I think we have, we have a little bit of time to talk about a couple of things that have been happening in the news around um, the queer community, as well as just generally the idea of the this queer people and other marginalised people being pitted against each other mm. just seems to be a theme at the moment. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm just so upset, I'm coughing about it. My lungs are shutting down in the horror of it. And so, yeah, there were just a couple of things that have ha- been happening in sort of, I guess, pop culture. Mm. Could, do you call sports pop culture? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, now it's yeah. become sort of a national interest. Yeah. On the way here, yeah. you know, Breakfast Radio was um, getting calls from people about whether or not they've funded, um, you know, Israel for Laos GoFundMe yeah. campaign. Yeah. Just, just to clarify, so there's there's two things. Yeah. <laughs> Let's dial back a little bit. Um, so there are two things that have been, that have happened. Um, one of them being um, something that's I 
books that can rant about the fun quite entertaining and one of them that's actually relatively serious. There's Ismail Folau and everything that's been happening around there and mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot to encapsulate but obviously um, Rugby Australia um, cancelled his contract, mm-hmm. he was reprimanded, he's been fined He for, for, for tweeting and um, refusing to apologise for a number of homophobic comments um, and then um, he's now started a GoFundMe page to try and fund that despite the fact that he's, I tried looking this up and I couldn't work out what his net worth was but it seems it's to taken be down, the GoFundMe so yeah. that's but the, then GoFundMe yeah. have taken, it, taken that down mm. and so a whole number of different things that have happened in that space um, and then on the other side of things we have Taylor Swift released a music video <laughs> um, to mark Pride Month, this was last week one of my friends actually said, I didn't know she was still making music. That's the extent to which Taylor Swift is generally not on the radar <laughs> in her life. But um, this popped up and had to watch it. Um, it's called You Need to Calm Down. And frankly, I'm not going to calm down about it. Um, <laughs> that was a terrible joke, but I just had to. Ding, <laughs> I, like, I love it. Yeah. And <laughs> in it, she is just... The video, whole video is about her ostensibly being an ally for the straight community, but in, in effect is drawing a line from trolls on Twitter that she experiences, which is a horrific thing mm. for anyone, especially for women, to experience trolling. But the trolls on Twitter that she experiences and draws a line between that and the whole history of oppression of the LGBTIQA plus community. Mm-hmm. Trolling is horrible, but the history of oppression that queer people have experienced Slightly different, Taylor. A little bit different. Um, if she's listening, I'm sure she is. Um, I know we established a few months ago that perhaps Janelle Monet might be listening. So <laughs> I know that's your hope, aren't you? So Taylor might be listening as well. Um, and the two things that come up as a result of that, that there seems to be a theme, um, is in the case of Israel Folau, and Ruby Hamad wrote a great article about this on the engine. And obviously it had um, some... You know, certain nuances that could be discussed about it around whether or not she was the right person to speak to it, um, herself not being Pacifica, but um, we'll leave that aside for one moment. Um, She highlighted that this is part of a broader history of colonialism because Israel Folau is... um, Oh, gosh, is he... Where is he? He's he's Tongan, isn't he? Gosh. um, I really should do my research before I rant. Um... Yes, yeah, so he's Tongan and the history of Christianity and um, uh, the colonial history of Christianity in Tonga. Um, and so a lot of his homophobia is based within his religious views. And then there's the fact, and my, my brain is not working now, but he obviously he, he stated these views, you know, abhorrent views. They shouldn't be stated, and if they do, he should apologise for it. And it's right for Rugby Australia to um, punish him for it. Um, but he's punished for it, and yet someone like Margaret Court, as Ruby Hamad outlines in her article, isn't punished for the things she says. Indeed, Margaret Court Arena is still called the Margaret Court Arena, and Margaret Court is and has been for decades one of Australia's most spectacular homophobes. Mm. I mean, she the things that she has been saying for decades about other people in tennis about other just just in general horrendous and yet she's never been admonished israel falau says a few things again awful things but he gets totally taken down and this is a history of marginalized communities being pitted against each other people of color 
like um, Israel Folau and the queer community, and you're told you two are enemies. But Margaret Court, it's okay, she's white. Same thing in the Taylor Swift video. If you go out, watch the video, she, there's um, images of uh, the so-called homophobes with their, with their banners um, and their placards, and they are all presented as predominantly white, or I think entirely white, mm-hmm. um, coded as um, poor, probably rural. Mm-hmm. They have no teeth. They have matted hair. They have bad clothes. Mm. They um, are like ripped clothes. They, their signs are um, uh, spelt incorrectly. So they are basically demonstrated to be, you know, poor, illiterate, all that kind of thing, and that's somehow equated with homophobia. Mm. It's somehow equated, <coughs> poverty is equated with immorality. Mm. And mm. the classism in that, and the idea of, and, and the, the queer people are all well-dressed in their, in their couture and their cool clothes and their bright colours, and they're sitting there sipping tea out mm. of teacups and having tea parties and all this kind of thing in a trailer park that is somehow made up to look like some kind of John Waters paradise. Again, derivative John Waters stuff. Like that's going on as well. Different thing. Um, and so we've got the same structures that have meant that poor people don't get the education that they may need mm. to be able to get dental care, mm. to be able to um, read and write um, in a way that meets the dominant structures, perceptions of what spelling should be. And then you've got the queer community whose oppression comes from a history of the same structures mm. pitted against each other in a music video. How's that going to achieve anything? Mm. Poor people are also queer people. Yeah. Often overwhelmingly mm-hmm. queer people are the poor people, mm-hmm. especially trans people, trans women of colour, mm. things like that. And there's even more issues around tra- the use of trans women of colour in the, in the video, but, you know, we can get into that another time perhaps, I don't yeah. know. And I, I mean, maybe it's too much for a music video to cover, but it's also it also ignores, as you say, like the insidious nature of transphobia and homophobia and, and queerphobia and, and, and all sorts of forms. Because it, in saying that, like, oh, this is something that uneducated people or poor mm. people, it's it, you know, any time some people people bring that up as like an excuse for you know for Trump or whoever, it's like look at the people celebrating during those things. Mm-hmm, it's like yeah. the ri- Mm-hmm. It's the richest, most white, most straight, most male, most cisgendered, richest people yeah, in the world like are the this, happiest. This it's constant like theme mm. of you know putting poor people down, and people just forget that fifty-three percent of white women voted for Trump. Let's right. not forget that. Yeah. yeah, like poor white people don't have the power to to create like um, tangible changes. So yeah, the, the you know it's but I I, I I'm not defending her, but. She used that easy option. She knows mm-hmm. that when it comes to homophobia, that's the go-to image. Mm-hmm. So I think she was trying to, <laughs> in her own shitty way, trying to make the video like relatable <laughs> because that's become the like the poster image of what's considered homo- uh, homophobic. Going back to the Falah stuff, because I haven't read Ruby Hamad's article. It's um, a great article. It's a very well written article. Yeah, I've like I've seen so many people sharing it, mm-hmm. but. I don't know if she mentions it. She probably does. But it'd be interesting to see, because he, he's not a black man, but he is the closest image to a black man and that whole caricature of the violent mm. black mm. man. So whatever he says is considered more threatening because mm. he's already been constructed as like someone that's like um, someone that can enact violence. Absolutely. So, mm. so whatever 
So he, like, I remember Ruby also said that on her, this was a while ago, where it doesn't matter what she says, like, what others, the way people perceive what she's saying is mm. a bigger issue rather than what she's saying. So people are too busy, like, policing how she says things rather mm. than the content of what she's saying. Absolutely. Mm. And, and and you picked up on something that, that, that Ruby picked up in her article. She starts mm. the article talking about, and I, you know, go out and read it, but... Um, she starts the article, not, not, not you, I, I mean, I'm not I'm saying <laughs> that to people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but she starts the article talking about um, in 1996, um, uh, some American GIs were um, convicted of assaulting, sexually assaulting, um, it was, was it a couple, it was a couple of young girls? Or a 12-year-old girl. Was, it, was yeah. it one girl? Mm. Um, and it was the first time that any American GIs had been punished for anything on on Japanese soil um, by the American army, <coughs> excuse me, despite the long history of American soldiers in Japan and the long history of abuses perpetrated yeah. by American soldiers. And those American soldiers were black. And there is definitely a connection there. You know, the, the policing of black bodies and, as you said, mm. the perception of black men as violent as the perpetrators of violence yeah. so i think that that's that she definitely draws that yeah. connection um, um, and there's a book called uh, i think it's called talking up to the white woman um i forgot the author's name unfortunately but it talks about the violence that white women have enact, enacted on aboriginal bodies especially aboriginal women and saying that there we have more to fear from them because mm. of just history but also knowing that they're um, protected by whiteness mm. and so like yeah so that so that's interesting yeah it's a gr- no it's a great article but I think people should also definitely read Patrick Thompson's article first Patrick Thompson is a Pacifica uh, man who's who's also queer and so he's in that weird um, you know spot of being a queer person of color being told that his community is mm-hmm. anti-queer. Um, so would definitely recommend reading his article first and then reading Ruby's article, mm-hmm. and it makes a lot more sense in that order. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the way she critiques whiteness as a structure is incredible. Mm. Uh, the amount of hate she gets for doing that is also incredible. But I also think it's really important, and this is something that often doesn't get talked about or gets lost in this whole drama, is that Israel Falau... He's very rich. People never talk about the classism aspect of all of this. You know, I think someone, I think it was Noyuka Gori, maybe, mentioned on Twitter that Israel Folau isn't some uncle at the barbecue making this offhand comment. You know, he's he's got a lot of privilege and a lot of power. Um, and a large platform. And a large platform to be able to know about these things and to make... Um, you know, reasonable comments and, and to apologize if necessary. And I think that's really important to not then attribute whatever he says simply to colonization. Colonization did play a part in, in how mm. you know our communities have responded to queerness and homophobia. But I'm talking from personal experience in the Indian community, the very rich upper class people have a very different experience mm. to, you know, people of a lower caste or lower economic status. Mm. And that's something that often doesn't get talked about. Mm. So it's a complex complex problem, but I think classism is often something that yeah, we need to consider as well. Absolutely, which draws a line with the with the toilet with the toilet swift, 
with the toilet. Toilet Swift. <laughs> I think it's <you> toilet. <laughs> toilet Swift. Toilet Swift. That's that's our new name on this show. Let's, toilet Swift. Let's make that happen. Um, mm. That definitely draws a line with that. We need to consider intersectionality includes classism, and it's very important to consider also, that. Also, he was asking for three million dollars for a court case. Sorry, just that's um, a weird. Uh, that's like ten times the amount that you could like a hundred times more than mm. uh, lawsuits usually cost. So, um, millionaire asks for three million dollars through GoFundMe. Yeah. Go, fund go fund yourself. Go fund yourself. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. Hey you, you who are listening, we haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. Outer Urban Projects and Hume City Council present Hume Studios, a unique performance event taking place in Melbourne's Broadmeadows. Dancers, musicians and vocalists from Islander, hip-hop and classical genres alongside Middle Eastern drummers combined to give you the best of Hume's mighty arsenal of emerging talent. Featuring Milad Noruzi, Ruthie Kaisila, Natasha Hanna, Joseph Samarani, poetry by Didam Kaya, choreography by Dion Nuku and Nicola McCarthy, directed by Irini Vela. Hume Studios, three shows only, Saturday the 29th of June at 4pm and 6.30pm and Sunday the 30th of June at 3pm. Free entry, but bookings are essential. For more information and tickets, head to outerurbanprojects.org. Outer Urban Projects, a 3CR supporter. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. That was a great song, Ayan. What was that? Uh, it was pretty unique. It was called uh, Queen with Colour. And Perfect. she's a local South Sudanese rapper. That's amazing. Um, up next, we're going to be talking to Haley Cole from Plan International about this incredible report that they've recently released. Thank you so much for joining us today, Haley. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Haley. maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and Plan International. 
Yeah, of course. My name is Hayley. I'm, I'm the Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement at Plan International, which is one of the our oldest and largest humanitarian and development organisations in the world. We work with children and, and particularly with girls in communities in 75 countries around the world to make sure that they have what they need to be able to go to school, to be safe, to really participate in life fully and, and to be treated as equals. Mm. And this report that we're going to be talking about this morning... Um, what is it about and what are some of the major findings from the report? So this report is um, the latest in a series we've been doing looking at adolescent girls in crisis. We know that in crisis situations around the world, girls and particularly adolescent girls around 10 to 19 mm-hmm. um, tend to be the most overlooked, the most vulnerable and they really face very unique and specific challenges whether it's in conflict settings or in um, sort of forced displacement, refugee settings, disasters. Um, and, and this particular report looks at um, the experiences of girls living in Beirut. Mm-hmm. Um, in Lebanon, we know that it's a country that has the highest number of refugees per capita in the world. Uh, and Lebanon in particular is under really, really um, significant strain from a lot of Syrian refugees who've come into the population over recent years uh, and also a lot of Palestinian refugees who've lived in that community for a number of years um, since 1949. In fact, there's been a a strong population of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this research is the first time really that researchers have looked at the experience of adolescent girls in that situation. Um, We know that that girls are, are struggling um, there are some significant barriers to, to them feeling as though they can be treated as equals and really get on with um, living their lives. One of the most significant findings um, is the level of violence that mm-hmm. girls are facing uh, in their community. More than half of the girls that we've spoken to have said that they face um, physical violence, sexual violence or some kind of verbal abuse or harassment of some sort where they live. So it's a really ever-present um, daily fear that girls are living with. Uh, in fact, that, that threat of violence is really the most significant concern um, that girls are facing. Mm-hmm. But there are also, um, relatedly, um, some very significant challenges to girls accessing education. Um, that includes primary but also secondary education. The opportunities are very limited for these girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often that means that um, families and girls themselves are left with seemingly no option but to um, look at child marriage as the only real solution for their future. So we're seeing rising rates of child marriage for these girls as well. Mm, so it's a form of escape from all the, the violence that they're facing? Yeah, that's right. It's um, it's sort of when, when families are left with almost no choice, um, it, it sort of seems like the last resort to keep girls safe mm-hmm. and to give them some sense of hope for the future. <coughs> and does the report um, talk about... I mean, it sounds like there's nowhere to go for these girls or, you know, to report because they're in that, I guess, sort of weird situation of being in a um, in a place where there's no one to report to. Is, that, is that, right? that That's right. Yeah, there are a lot of people, um, humanitarian organisations, that are trying to provide um, services to, to girls in um, Lebanon. In fact, Plan International is, is one of those organisations. But it's, it's a real challenge because of the scale um, of the need. There's more than 2 million refugees living in Lebanon. Mm. Um, and, and it's really, it's been a rising population really quite quickly. And so the, the scale of the need is, is still, it, people are still struggling to meet that. And so whilst there are 
some schools available and there are support services and psychological support services available. Um, we really need more support to be able to scale that work up. Uh, it, it's a real challenge. And I think for a lot of girls, um, what they're finding is that actually because the support services aren't there and the infrastructure isn't really there, um, a lot of the time girls actually feel as though they need to stay home. It, it doesn't feel safe to go out of their house and they don't necessarily have education or a purpose really to justify um, the risk. So girls actually spend a lot of time um, at their home and they and they report really feeling very isolated and very lonely. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really heartbreaking. Can you take us through some recommendations proposed in the report? Of course. The most significant thing really is that we need to make sure that the global community, and that's NGOs like Plan International, and it's also um, governments and and sort of agencies that are working to, to change this situation, we need to make sure that adolescent girls are really seen and heard as a unique group that has really unique and specific needs. Mm. The kind of challenges that girls are going through during adolescence are really like no other. They're, they're very different from what girls are experiencing as children and they're very different from what adults adults and adult women need as well. So we need to make sure that, that governments and, and the humanitarian response really recognises the unique needs of girls and make sure that their voices are actually heard in the decision-making processes. Um, we need to make sure that when we're designing humanitarian programs and when governments are looking at long-term solutions, that they're really consulting with girls and listening to them. That's really the most significant um, recommendation that we need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a number of other measures that we think would make a significant difference. And, and one of those um, is around making sure that the barriers that can sometimes prevent uh, refugee communities from attending schools Um, those barriers need to be removed. So that means making sure that there are not only enough schools, but that that there's no um, restrictions in place that say that girls from certain communities can't access those schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And with that comes making sure that there's access to healthcare, access to information about their sexual and reproductive health rights, Mm -hmm. and and making sure they have safe spaces where they can meet with their peers and socialise and feel part of a community. Mm. And so, I mean, you know, the report's out and the the statistics are very troubling and, and yeah, re- really heartbreaking. Where to from here? What is Plan International proposing to do in light of all this data and how can the general public support you? Well, Plan International is committed to making sure that the voices of girls um, in Lebanon and, and all around the world, really, where they're not heard, our, our most significant commitment is making sure that those voices are heard so that the people who, who, can, who can change this situation are able to really take action. So we'll continue to um, help make sure that the voice of these girls in Lebanon um, gets heard and gets through. Mm. And we also, um, we're running, working with partners to run humanitarian programs uh, in the Middle East, and, and we need to make sure that we're able to continue those programs and scale those up. And so if the public wanted to get involved, I'd encourage people to join. In particular, we've got an appeal at the moment looking at the issue of child marriage, mm-hmm. which is one of the most significant issues, um, not just in Lebanon, but actually in refugee and other communities around the world. And if people wanted to be part of our appeal to help us really scale up our efforts to end child marriage, I'd very much encourage people to go to our website, plan.org.au and and make a donation, um, which is a really significant um, way of helping to make sure that we can reach all the girls around the world who need us. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hayley. My pleasure. Thank you.
celebrate the end of Radiothon with the friendliest punks around. Greek Resistance Bulletin is throwing a party featuring pests, Somatized, Parlour, Punter and Gun Laws on Saturday the 6th of July at Bar 303. That's 303 High Street in Northcote. Listen on Tuesdays at 10pm for news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek and join us to celebrate the diversity of punk and support community radio 3CR. Check out Greek Resistance Bulletin on Facebook for more details. So again, get along to the old Concrete Gang and your radio thon pull-up for 3CR Radio. Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then. donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. In the studio, we have Zoya, Anya and Chris. Um, so the song that you just heard, that beautiful, beautiful song, was called Divine by Mwanji. And interestingly enough, Mwanji is the sister of Sampa the Great. So it makes sense that there would be two superstars in one family because, you know, some folks get lucky, others are me. So, um, so recently the Trump administration, um, well, the Trump administration is holding a peace to prosperity economic workshop in Bahrain at the end of this month. And this policy, this workshop is being sold as the deal of the century. But there are some raised eyebrows. And today we have... Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer with the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network to sort of make sense of it and tell us why we should be, you know, on guard. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you very much and thanks for doing the morning show on these freezing cold mornings. Oh, my God. I don't even know how I made it to the studio. It is incredible. (laughs) Um, so before we look at why this policy is problematic, 
in in general terms, can you tell us what it is? Yeah, sure. So it is a vision. There's no money on the table yet. So the US administration has got a plan to spend $50 billion of other people's money um, within the West Bank and the surrounding countries. So half in Palestine, the West Bank in Gaza, and the other half in neighbouring countries. Mm. Um, so they're imagining a a combination of loans, uh, grants and private investment. And at the um, top of the show, we, we, we mentioned how it's being sold as the deal of the century. Um, why does it raise red flags? Yeah, well, if we look at what Trump's done since he came to being a president, um, he's moved Israel's embassy to Jerusalem. He's shut Palestine's embassy in Washington. He's cut all funding to UNRWA, the UN body that looks after the Palestinian refugees, including food and basic health care as well as schools, and completely dismissed the Palestinian refugee situation. Uh, and then this year he said that Israel's occupation of the Golan Heights is legitimate and the US doesn't care about it anymore. And then in the last few weeks, officials have talked about saying it's fine if Israel takes over parts of the West Bank and annexes and annexes it. So what you've seen is a US government that's completely undermined Palestinian interests, been really partisan to Palestine. And in all this talk, um, in the lead up to the plan, they've talked about throwing out Palestinian statehood. They've, you know, as I said, talked about annexing the settlement. So while they've unveiled this economic plan, which isn't inherently a bad thing to put money into Palestine, what it looks like being is a deal sweetener for what comes next, um, which is a horrific undermining and permanent jettisoning of of Palestinian rights, and that's the big problem. Um, And look, it's not like Palestinians need charity or a financial investment for others. Palestinians are known throughout the Middle East for being amazing business people. Um, the World Bank has said that it's the, the Israeli restrictions on the Palestinian economy that is decimating it by about 35% of the economy. So as Palestinians said, they just need sovereignty and space. Um, and once they've got self-determination, then they can build their own economy. They don't need um, the US to decide what to do with other people's money. Mm. It sounds like this workshop... Um uh, whether it's the intention or not, undermines self-determination. Um, so for, the, for people listening and who are concerned and want to do something about it, are there campaigns or like other online um, things that we can do to sort of bring awareness to it? Yeah, so right now I would ask people to get in touch with APAN, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. We put all our action alerts on both our social media and our website. So it's APAN, APAN.org.au, or the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network on Facebook, um, and we're also on Twitter as APAN for Palestine. So if you follow us and share our material on social media, that would be a fantastic start. Um, we do expect that there'll be a public campaign in, in coming days. But, I mean, what we're trying to work out is whether this US plan is actually got legs or it's going to be a complete flop. So, so far, the Arab leaders are reluctantly attending this, this conference um, in Bahrain. Um, and so it, it may come up with a proposal and it may actually fall dead on its feet and nobody put money on the table. So... 
So we'll see in the next day or so whether it's something we all need to mobilise around or just laugh at. <laughs> laugh at. I'm hoping laugh at is, is what we end up going with. Thank you so much Absolutely. for your no, time, Absolutely. No, it's a hideous Jessica. and dangerous plan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Jessica. Great. Thanks so much. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662-3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast um, at 3cr.org.au or 8.55am. You're in the studio with me, Zoya, Ayan, Anya. Chris is still here. Hi, Chris. That, was, that song just then was Dombolo by Les Amazones Afrique, um, who are a great uh, Malian supergroup of female artists. And before that, we had an interview with Jessica Morrison, who was the executive director of... Australia Palestine Network, Advocacy Network, APAN. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ayan. Sorry, I'm terrible with acronyms. Um, and now Anya has an interview. I do. Um, next up, we're going to be talking to Emily Sexton about a very exciting new project that's going to be happening in the Arts House in about two weeks. It's called Future Assembly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Emily, tell us about, well, tell us about yourself first and about Future Assembly. Um, so this is my first um, year still at Arts House. I started last year, and I guess because I'm um, at the beginning of being artistic director there, the organisation has a long um, track record of doing really progressive, interesting programming and working with new people. But um, I guess I wanted to gather together something that um, celebrated some of the biggest visionaries I know um, who really think deeply about the future of our country and what role art can play um, and kind of brings them together for, I guess, maybe you'd call it an anti-summit or a, the, the, the other kind of conference, but um, where we're doing anything but symposiums. There's no lectures. There's no panels. Um, we're, we are doing all the things that artists know how to do best. So um, there is spoken word, there is dance, there is parties, there are sewing, there are beautiful, I guess, intricate conversations. And 
I guess we're trying to do all of that in a, a decolonized frame So and putting women and people who identify women right at the center of what we might imagine for the future. Mm, and it's, I mean, the big names involved as well. I think we're going to be talking to four of the artists in the next few weeks, um, including our Tuesday breakfast favorite, Candy Bowers. Really exciting. Yeah, yeah, we've got some incredible people that, yeah, will probably be quite known to your listeners. One of the things I'm super pumped about is um, Hannah Bronte's Stem Press. Mm -hmm. Hannah's practice um, has really dominated Australia's um, major institutions for the last couple of years. She's had a huge amount of success with, um, I guess, bringing together hip-hop and MCs and um, the club scene, but also some really powerful video um, and protest work people might have seen um, a really awesome work she had as part of the national, or she has as part of the national at um, the MCA in Sydney at the moment, um, that really looked at the role that um, mothering and mothers play in progressing societies. So her, um, Hannah has come up with this amazing party called the Motherload, and it is all, all um, six different um, female-identifying MCs and um, performers sort of coming together to consider what labour, what um, work means, what, um, yeah, what, what, the, what a caring responsibility looks like, and they're doing that through, through performance and, and through partying, which I think will be really fun. Mm, well, I've never heard of anything like that, so that sounds really <laughs> interesting. Um, and you talked a little bit about, uh, I guess, decolonizing the future and the arts, um, and that's also uh, sort of something that's mentioned in the media release about Future Assembly. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? What, what does that mean? What does decolonizing the future and the arts mean? Um, yeah, it's a good question, but I think uh, white allies and... Um, anyone, you know, we need to be thinking through as a country. Um, I think for me, what it means, and I can only speak for myself, mm -hmm. is um, I guess an active kind of listening and, and making space. So I'm a, you know, I'm the curator that's responsible for Arts House's program, but I think what that really means in a contemporary sense is, is looking for ways to make as much space for a plurality of other voices as possible. So this is the one of the ways in which we do that. Um, we need to do that through programming, but we obviously need to do that at a structural level as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's the main project for any contemporary art institution at the moment is, is to consider the ways in which it can open itself out um, you know, overcome some of those structural inequalities that are, you know, so prohibitive and, and such intense barriers for people of colour and for First Nations people to do their best work. So this is one of the ways in which we're thinking through that and doing that in a public way, doing that with, you know, with people who are coming along, with artists at the front. Um, and then what I would hope is that it affects and changes everything that we do in the, in the coming years. And I guess that's part of my um, ethos or approach mm -hmm. and something I've drawn on when I, you know, when I was at Next Wave or when mm -hmm. I was at Melbourne Fringe is that I, I really like to do, I guess, that learning in public and I like to um, think through really complicated things in the doing, not in just sitting in a corner and writing policy about it. I feel like art is about making stuff and making it with communities. So, yeah, so we do, we do that right, you know, with, with alongside everyone else and, and all go on that journey together. Mm, perfect. And 
Yeah, look, it, it sounds incredible, and I can't wait to talk to individual artists um, <clears throat> the next two weeks about their their projects. Um, could you maybe take listeners through the logistics? Where is it happening? What's um, when? How much it takes? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can if you head to artshouse.com.au, that is um, the site for all the details. It's happening from the 10th of July, so um, that's the place for tickets and to see what's on. There's a huge amount of different things. It is, yes, the, um, the sort of big night that um, we've mentioned with Candy Bowers and um, Hannah Bronte and all their collaborators, but there's also some really meaningful exhibitions. There's um, some really great different sort of quieter things to do as well. Mm. So it's really just a, it's a four-day kind of program of ticketed and free events. Um, they're not expensive. Um, they're about 15 bucks. So head along, you can buy it all on the website. And, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, the artists um, themselves are going to be much <laughs> more eloquent and um, focused than me and, you know, in really saying what they want to say. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job today. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Put some black and deadly sound. Appreciate community radio 855 on the AM dial. Put on the pieces of the pieces. Black and deadly Friday. Robbie Fort Radic Radio. In 2013, 3CR and the team of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander broadcasters visit six prisons throughout Victoria and join with over 100 participants from within the justice system to broadcast live and celebrate NAIDOC Week to connect the mob from behind the bars back to community. Broadcasting from Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Lodden Prison, Port Phillip Prison and Marganate Correctional Centre. The following highlights are from those broadcasts. These are the stories from Beyond the Bars. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. We have in the studio Zoya, Anya and Chris. And the time is 8.15. And I don't know what the weather is outside, but hopefully it's not. It's gotten better from when I got here, which was at 6. So the song that you heard just then was called Garden Wall by Tasha Zapala. And before that, you heard... 
the amazing Sampa the Great with energy. And now uh, we have an interview with Asher Wolf. Um, Asher Wolf is a, a, a freelance journalist, social media analyst, and internaut. She was a recipient of an Amnesty International Australian Media Award in 2014. Um, her history of campaign work and activism includes Occupy, the push to end robo-debt, Census Fail, My Health Record opt-out, and the international privacy and security movement known as Crypto Party. And she's currently advocating for genetic diagnostic access and multidisciplinary centralised treatment clinics for Australians with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And she recently attended the Progress 2019 conference that was held here in Melbourne. Hi, Asha. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, thank you for taking some time to talk to us this morning. I know you're rather busy. Um, oh, <laughs> um, If you don't mind, um, do you reckon you could t- tell us a bit about um, Progress Conference, um, why you decided to go, and, and sort of what, what you encountered when you got there? Right. So Progress is a big shindig run by um, Oz Progress. Um, it's essentially quite an expensive conference to attend, so hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but I got offered a freebie ticket through somebody. Um, Basically, every year, uh, Oz Progress invites uh, hundreds of sometimes activists, sometimes campaigners or lobbyists to come speak about progressive campaigns um, with varying degrees of success. So... uh, what I experienced this year when I attended, it was the second time I've attended, was that um, I'm attending with now a disability, which is not something that I've had to work around before um, at this level um, of disability. And uh, the first thing on trying to get into the conference was there was a request to bag search me while I was in a sling. So I have a fractured shoulder with bursitis and tendon tears. Um, and some impingement of bone on bone. And uh, there was no way I was going to try and get the bag off from underneath my sling to be bag searched. And so I left immediately and tweeted that I was really unhappy, um, probably stronger words than unhappy, um, <laughs> about the situation. Um, one of the partner orgs, uh, their representatives came out and had a chat with me and talked to security and got me in and somebody from Progress came out and actually bag searched me on behalf of Progress, <laughs> uh, which was interesting. And uh, Gosh. once I got inside, it was really obvious that accessibility and inclusion was really a lip service. So um, there was no crowd control in any sense. There was, you know, uh, okay, there was lists, but to get to the list you had to negotiate your way through huge crowds of people that were moving very fast in all directions in a very tight area. Um, and quite often people were bashing into me, ignoring the swing on. Um, the lifts weren't reserved for people with disability, um, so people would just try and jam in, and so suddenly I'm jammed up into the wall with a fractured shoulder. Um, in every room that I went into, basically, people with disability were forced to wait till the end to negotiate their way in and out of rooms because of the crowds of people. There wasn't uh, microphones in the rooms that I went into for speakers, so people who were deaf couldn't uh, couldn't hear uh, what was happening up the back. Um, 
it was just a mis- it was a mess. It was a real mess when it came to accessibility. None of the real um, support structures had been put in place, and that was despite having an accessibility officer at Progress um, actually email people who have requested supports before the conference. So I said, look, uh, I probably will need access to a lift. Um, stairs are really tough on me because I have bursitis. I have hip problems at the moment. Um, just having a lift in itself is not an accessibility support if I can't actually access the lift because it's full of people with without disability who are occupying it first. Um, the thing was that these... Um, Complaints were actually raised in 2017 as well by other people with disability and the promise that changes would occur just wasn't taken up by progress. Mm. And I guess that's why um, I ended up writing an article about um, my experience. Um, yeah, it wasn't a great experience. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds absolutely terrible. And I'm so sorry you have to, I suppose, relive it and re-explain it um, in order to try and get some change happening. Um, what in what has been um, Ozprogress's response to this, if any? <laughs> Ozprogress went very quiet, so I actually asked them to contact me privately. Um, publicly, they apologised just generally to people with disability. They got up on stage, their, their CEO got up and made an apology to the crowd. But to me personally, at first, until today, which is... Uh, three days after the end of the conference, I heard nothing from them privately. Mm. Um, And I was really disappointed by that because what I did see them doing was having conversations with people who did not have disability, um, who were fairly high-profile activists or people in the media or people who were CEOs of large uh, organisations. They had conversations with them first. Um, and so these people would come back to me and say, hey, Asher, I spoke to the organisers. And I'd say, well, that's great, but I want them to speak to me because I'm the person with the complaint. Mm. Stop putting yourselves at the centre of this. Put people with disability at the centre of change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that and that kind of um, speaks to, uh, in, at one point in your article that you posted up on Medium, you said nothing about us without us. Because as you highlight, right. only two panellists with lived experience um, with disability could be identified, which, as you said, is in no way representative of the level of disability in the community. Um, why, right. why do you think this might be the case? Why do you think um, there might be that, that, that low, lower level of representation? If I'm going to be really cynical, and I am, um, I would suggest that the so-called progressive organisations that build themselves as social change movements aren't actually social change movements. They're actually data farmers and that the concept of social change is a lure and a bait for getting people in the door and donating. And it's basically a merry-go-round of data collection, donation, getting more people involved, hyping, uh, affiliation with the organisation through uh, piggybacking off grassroots movements. Um, so, for instance, whether it's previously RoboDebt or if it's... Uh, maybe an environmental cause or Indigenous activists bringing them in um, and, you know, talking about their work. It's always piggybacking off somebody else's work, you know, whether it's, hey, we're putting up a a change.org petition. It's not actually change.org's work. It's somebody else's work. Or if it's GetUp talking about RoboDebt, well, actually, GetUp wasn't in charge of the RoboDebt campaign. They weren't the the grassroots activists. And again, when it comes to progress, Ozprogress, 
they're bringing in Indigenous activists and saying, hey, come come to our conference, you know, we have the most stunning leaders in the world. Well, actually, they're not your activists, they're, they're their own activists. Mm. You're using them as bait and lure to get people in the door to pay hundreds of dollars. Um, is there good things to learn from listening to people who, you know, um, are being platformed by these large organisations? Yes, but... Uh, if these organisations themselves are contributing to situations that lead to exclusion um, and and inaccessible situations for people with disability, then um, we have to ask, well, what are they actually giving back to social change? Yeah, absolutely. It just seems what, like what you're saying is it's it's a bit of a, a feedback loop that's happening, um, uh, an echo chamber, I suppose. And we've only got a couple of minutes left, but... Um, just as a final question, in terms of addressing these issues and trying to break out of this echo chamber or feedback loop and, and actually enact change in a way where these organisations aren't just eating themselves, I suppose, um, what do you think needs to be done? I think that any support has to be centred around grassroots and um, around the actual activists involved in movements. So mm. rather than... Uh, pushing them onto larger platforms that are not actually going to push donations or money or uh, public support back towards those communities, it actually uh, has to change to a, a situation where we're not just platforming some shiny white CEO for a, a data farming organisation fronting as a social change movement. We mm. need to be putting back into remote and and rural communities, uh, we need to be putting back into, you know, people on the ground. We need to be including uh, accessibility training organisations like People with Disability Australia, um, and not thinking that um, large organisations can do it all on their own. That they're all experts. We need to bring in experts in, in from their own communities um, to talk about what works in communities, um, whether it's uh, indigenous or whether it's um, disability or whether it's um, talking about poverty and poverty was something that was really missed at, uh, at Oz Progress. You know, we didn't hear from people on the ground like Ella Bucks and Buckland um, who was um, involved in the Parents Next campaign. Sort of, it, there seems to be a skimming over of anything that's unseemly or that's uh, angry or hard to deal with um, from a, a very middle class perspective of activism um, occurring at Oz Progress at the moment. Mm, it's a sort of shiny activism, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, we, uh, we reached out to Oz Progress, and, and, you know, it was sort of quite last minute, and they haven't been able to send someone in to have an interview. And we'll be interviewing them next week. Um, they did say, that, however, that they are putting a blog post up today about, about this situation. Um, is there anything further that you um, want to say in the last sort of 30 seconds that, that, that we have of the, of the interview? Otherwise, you can just let us know how we can follow you on socials and that kind of thing and, yeah. and read Look, more I of your fabulous articles. Fascinating that Oz Progress actually finally got in contact to apologise with me after a radio program reached out to them. They actually offered me money um, in exchange for my written complaint that I posted on my Medium blog. Um, <laughs> So, look, um, I'm very cynical of this uh, engagement with the media that um, Oz Progress is now 
deciding to uh, participate in. Uh, I wish them all the best of luck, and I hope that they undertake accessibility training in the future. Thank you so much. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much, Ash, and thank you for calling in, or for us calling thank in. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. That's the end of Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio for today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to our wonderful guests this morning. Um, we had Haley Cole from Plan Australia, Jessica Morrison, um, Executive Director of APEN, um, and we had Emily Sexton, Artistic Director of Future Assembly, uh, that's happening at the Arts House, and finally we had Asha Roof, um, Wolf. Wolf, talking about Progress 2019, um, and you foreshadowed something, Zoya, about next week. Yes, we potentially, I'm, I'm hoping to get um, a representative from um, Oz Progress on to speak to these issues that Asha was speaking about as well. Very exciting. So see you next week, everyone. This is Ayan, Zoya, Chris, and myself, Anya. This is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.